you know, growing up, um, I went to two schools in grade school, actually three. Uh, one of them was St. Alphonsus uh, in Lamont, and the other one was St. Patrick in Lamont, a nice Irish school. Um, I really liked going to the service of St. Alphonsus. Um, the, well, going there as a, as, a, as a kid, it's where I met my first love, Miss McNamara, the gym teacher. Um, I met my second and true love later. But be aware that she met her first true love in second grade. Mine was third. Okay? But I, 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 I uh, upgraded. I went from a gym teacher to a junior Olympic swimmer. So uh, I'd just like to say that, uh, right? Upgraded. Yeah. She's gotten lots of medals. She went all the way through um, and got to that level. But I really liked St. Alphonsus because... The service only lasted 30 minutes. And as a kid, that was awesome. The sermon itself, five minutes. Uh, yeah, I don't know what you learn in five minutes, but you know, when you're, you can only sit for five minutes, it's great. Uh, you're, not so unfortunate. you're not so fortunate. You're unfortunate. It's going to be longer than five minutes. Uh, we're going to go back uh, to last December. Uh, was the last time we met. Um, and we're going to look at the last of the three sons uh, that encompassed the state of mankind in Romans 1 through 3. Okay, That's where we're at. And as a brief reminder, let's take you through some of that. The first son, he got washed down the river and decided to become like the world right around him, and he began to seek the pleasures of this world. And he did that in lieu of wanting or desiring the things that he once had with his father. He substituted the things of royalty for lowly things. This person was all about me, all about what I could get, all about what I could attain. And in doing so, he didn't even consider what he really could have, something that's so much more valuable than these things. For this pleasure seeker, this pagan, this Gentile, is more than idolatry in its basic form. And as a result of it, the wrath of God was being revealed because what can be known about God is both uh, within us, right? Because he created us, we're created in God's image, and it was shown to us through his creation. This wrath can be seen all around us in the things that people idolize today and the effects impact all the way down to the core of the person's spirit, body, and soul. Then the last time we met, we looked at the second son the one that's self-righteous in nature. This is a person that wants to point out the error of the first son's way. We looked at the grotesqueness, I can't say that word, of this in relation to the grace that's provided by the Father through his Son, uh, Jesus Christ, and the opposites of those. Uh, this grace has at its underpinning this concept of long-suffering by God towards us as a sign of patience and mercy, and that it may lead us to repentance instead of exacting his justice uh, and his judgment on us in the very moment. This is an incredible picture of his love, in that what we really deserve is that ultimate judgment, but he desires for all of us to be reconciled to him. We, on the other hand, we seek to point out the faults of others and condemn them, 
both in the here and now and along with an eternal judgment, the you're going to hell kind of attitude. But we can't see the heart or know what's going on with that person to really be able to act as that type of judge. To show this, we looked at the story of a guy named Rene Level Martinez, who was the leader of the Latin syndicate in South Florida, and how he turned from his ways and became an evangelist for Christ. And then in the same area that he terrorized the people in his neighborhood, he then became an advocate uh, to turn, have them turn their ways. In a more recent story that occurred right after I preached that last message, uh, I was reading about another person that was blasting their music all night long, it may have been Chris, because she's this like groupie kind of thing. I don't know. Um, and it was impacting the neighbors. The lady that was most affected, um, she was ready to call the cops on this person. And it's really something that any of us could do. I can imagine myself doing it. I can imagine you guys doing it, because it just gets annoying, and that's what you do. But she decided to do something else. She decided to bake him some food and write a note on it instead as a peace offering. A few days later, the music went down, and she eventually found out the background of his situation. He was dealing with the premature and accidental loss of his daughter, and this was a side effect of his grieving. If she had responded out of anger and self-whatever, the story could have come out completely different, but now they consider themselves friends. Whether it's our own self-indulgent like the first son or our self-righteousness like our se- the second son, it's still man-focused and it's still sin. In regards to sin, the first one looked at the world as no one is guilty. The second one looked at the world and at sin as you are guilty. And now we're going to look at the third son that says, I am always guilty. This third son's no, none other than the legalist. The one that is never good enough. The one that has to clean himself up before coming to God. The one that has to do enough good deeds in order to be accepted by God. The one that has to stack those rocks up the river to try and get back, knowing it's fruitless. We will find out that this too is idolatry, and this person's in the same position in regards to judgment as the other two. Let's read about this third son in the rest of Romans 2 verse 17 to Romans 3. It's a fairly lengthy passage, and if uh, Pastor Tim was here, he'd divide it up into about three months. But <laughs> Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you have not been circumcised. 
If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made charge, made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the, peace, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Uh, you have the words of life. Um, thank you for the blessings uh, that you've given to us. Uh, and I pray now that uh, through your word uh, and through what is said, uh, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Point number one, your pedigree doesn't save. In the, in the 2018 um, uh, National Dog Show, aw, who put that there? I'm happy to say that the Chesapeake Bay Retriever won the best in the sporting group. It beat out the Golden Retriever. <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. <laughs> Holly, our dog, is a Chessie, and her pedigree rose to the top of the group. Unfortunately, the Chessie did not go on to win the overall best in breed. 
uh, despite the fact uh, that I think her pedigree should have risen to the top, it was determined by the judges that she didn't measure up, despite all the training and all the preparation. In the same way, in this passage, Paul now turns his uh, attention specifically to the Jew. Uh, And he does this in a way that builds a framework of a legal argument, you could say, against, uh, against them when it comes to their idolatry and their own shortcomings as it relates to being right with God. Being a Jew doesn't qualify you for special status when it comes to salvation. You're not an automatic winner. If you go back to the beginning of the section, you find Paul delivering a series of ifs that build upon each other until it has the ultimate effect of crashing down on them as Paul knocks down the foundation that's built. Much like a house of cards would be as you carefully stack them together. This house of cards is called Judaism as they built it, and it's a form of idolatry. They built an entire system around what God created, originally intended, and over time, this system got elevated above the lawgiver himself. Let's break it down. Here's a series of ifs that uh, Lynn just read. And think of it as Paul, as the prosecutor, lays it out. If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve uh, of what is superior because you're instructed by it, if you're convinced that you're a guide to the blind, a light for those in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of infants, Paul starts out with creating this sort of proofs that he knows what a Jew is, as he once was the Pharisee of Pharisees. And as a result, he knows very well what it means to live out the religious Judaism, which he's now about to condemn. Then you see, you can almost feel the bond, the brotherhood, the connection that he's laying out. Yes, I am this Jew. I am superior to the pagans because I have the law, and they don't. God delivered it to us and not them. Yes, because I know the law, it was taught to me, you know, and I know the difference between right and wrong. And because of that, you're right, I am a a guide to the lost, a guide to the blind, uh, a teacher to the foolish and infants, because I have that knowledge. I have the word of God. It's my heritage. This is how I was raised. If this was a movie, I can imagine it being played out. The person can't see what's about to happen. But you watching the movie, you can see the setup and the hammer about to come down on the logic. You're like, stop it, don't fall into Paul's trap. You're about to be called out and you don't realize it. And then, right then, Paul throws it down. Then you. Which leads us uh, into this next section. Paul shows them they're about to fall into moral failure. Picture Paul back in that courtroom. And after building up his case on, on who the defendant, the Jew, saying, if this and if that, he then lays down the hammer and says this, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach stealing, do you not steal? You who say that, uh, you, you say that people should not commit adultery. You abhor idols, but you rob temples. You brag about the law, but you dishonor him by breaking the law. God's name is blasphemed because of you. Ouch. It's a harsh statement, isn't it? And uh, that type of statement leads to death, like Stephen and others. But Paul bases this on the very law that the Jewish believers know well, 
So they're without excuse when it comes to these declarations. Paul leverages Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah to Ezekiel to validate the point here. In Isaiah 52.5 it says, And now what have I here, declares the Lord, for my people have been taken without cause. Those who rule them taunt them, declares the Lord, and my name is blasphemed all day long. In Ezekiel it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the people of Israel lived in the land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. Their behavior before me was like the uncleanliness of a woman in, a, in its monthly impurity. So I poured out my... <laughs> there's descriptive words. <laughs> so I poured out my wrath upon them because of the blood they shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered throughout the lands. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they had to leave the land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, to which they had gone. God's name is blasphemed because of you. You see, the Jewish people, and more so the Jewish leaders, are just as guilty as the pagans. They fall back on their legacy, on their pedigree, as descendants of Abraham. They claim that they were special keepers in knowledge because they received the law from God, but they were never able to do what was required of it. Paul points out that they too have failed so bad that the world around them even knows it. Only God was faithful to his covenant between himself and the Israelites. The people fell away, and because of it, they were ultimately scattered and brought into captivity. Which, by the way, you consider the kind of execution of God's wrath in the then, here and now. God's name will not be defiled without consequence, and nor should it. The point is, they're just as guilty, and they can't hang their hat on the fact that they received the law your heritage, your, per, your, your pedigree, where you came from cannot save you. Second point, symbols can't save you. Going back to the Junior Olympics, Lynn has a whole box of medals and ribbons from her journey through the years of swimming competition. She could have uh, put all those symbols behind glass, hung it up on the wall for everyone to see, show how awesome she was in her youth, how she beat all the competition and set all the various records. In the end, though, only one person can stand on that center platform at the Olympics. Only one can ever be good enough to receive the accolades of getting the gold. Likewise for the Jews, symbols won't save you. Picture yourself back in the courtroom. You're the defendant. You're a cornered animal now. You, you need to find a way out of the situation that you were just backed into with no escape. So what do you do? You do the next best thing. But, but and Paul interjects, you're about to say, I'm circumcised. I'm now pleading my innocence on my circumcision. Yes, it's a sensitive subject that must be dealt with surgical precision. And all the guys in the room cringe. Paul wastes no time. He doesn't have to explain what circumcision is. It's two weeks in a row on that, by the way. But, it just, but he just jumps right in because he knows he's talking to the Jews. 
they would declare that we are of the circumcised. We have Abraham as our father. We have the covenant made with God and us. This is the sign of that. We plead this to get out of this trap that you just set for us. What they're referring to is Genesis 17, which lays out the covenant of circumcision. It reads, God also said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and the descendants after you, which you are to keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You are, to be, you are to circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and this will be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Generation after generation, every male must be circumcised when he's eight days old. Remember that, Alex. Uh, including those born in your household. Oh, but do we know? I forget if it's a girl or a boy. Oh, it doesn't matter then. Okay. <laughs> uh, including those born in your household, bummer, and those purchased uh, from a foreigner, even though... Even those who are not your offspring, whether they are born in your household or purchased, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh will be an everlasting covenant. But if any male is not circumcised, he will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. There, Paul, deal with that. I think I just found my way out of this mess. But he sees right through that argument. Here's the problem. If we ignore God's requirements, the covenant made between God and man, and by doing so we suppress the truth and fall into that moral disregard, you nullify that circumcision. In fact, Gentiles, that in concept, not reality, follow the requirements of the law. They technically would be judges over the Jews. Circumcision, the work, the outward symbol, is only good if there's an inward change, inward alignment that goes along with it. Symbols don't save. Ultimately, trusting in outward religious practices like, like circumcision to find acceptance of God is still truth suppression. What's really required is obedience, a circumcision of the heart. Follow me here as I read uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12 and on. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and stiffen your necks no more. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great, mighty, and awesome God, showing no partiality and accepting no bribe. He, accept, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. So you also must love the foreigner, since you were yourselves foreigners in the land of Egypt. And in Colossians 2.11, which we just had a few weeks ago, in him you were also circumcised. How? In the putting off of your sinful nature with a circumcision performed by Christ and not by human hands. So what's the point here? Basically, the outward things that we do, whether circumcision or other symbols or activities that we hold on to, are not valid in the eyes of God because the heart has not been changed. We, and God sees the heart. These outward symbols are to be a reflection of inward change. Baptism is uh, an example of that. It's a good analogy. The finished work of Christ was already done prior to the symbolic act of being submerged in water. Baptism is a public testimony to our inward change. And that leaves us with the following. The final indictment of the Jews. What do we know? 
First, we know that the Jews hardly agree in the indictment of the Gentiles for their idolatry. We've seen that in Romans 1. We know that the Jewish religion called Judaism is nothing more than legalism or following the rules that Paul was as good as any at, and that's of no value. Why? Because no one would ever be able to measure up to God's holiness. This is the typical, I can jump higher than you, but neither one of us can jump to the moon kind of uh, example. To the moon, Alice, where was it? Um, I don't remember what her name was. Uh, We know that growing up under a system or within a family, circumcision or descendant of Abraham, is not enough. We know that all of the above is just really a rejection of the revelation about the coming Messiah that was uh, their own prophets had foretold. Therefore, Judaism as a result is a kind of visible wrath against the Jews, just like the idolatry of the Gentiles was a visible wrath against the pagans. How do I get that? Let's look at Paul again and his conversation to the Thessalonians in Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16. It reads, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Judea that are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the very things they suffered from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and drove us out as well. They are displeasing to God and hostile to them, hindering us from telling the Gentiles how they may be saved. And as a result, they continue to heap up their sins to full capacity. The utmost wrath has come upon them. In the end, the Jews have to deal with this reality. If Judaism was God's good news to all men, then God himself did not keep his covenant with Abraham. It was never intended to be the end all, but to point and to serve to point uh, people to the Messiah who has already come. So that brings us to this ultimate despair, this total depravity of man. Both Jew and Gentile are hopelessly lost without God. Romans 3, 9 through 18 summarize this reality for us. And you can kind of break it down into two halves. The first half, through verse 12, deals with the extensiveness of our lostness. Judaism, humanism, any other ism cannot save. What does it say? It reads this. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. As it's written, here's the extensiveness. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the extensiveness. The second half, from verses 13 to 18, deal with the intensiveness of that lostness. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The venom of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Ruin, their, feet, uh, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery lie in their wake. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You can see that today. That is the intensiveness. Mankind is not 
mostly good with a few bad apples that do these things. We are all bad apples. We will never measure up. We'll never be good enough. And the sooner we accept that, the better off we'll be. That's the opposite of what the world tells us. The world tells us that people are generally good. Many of you here, if not all, are very likely better than me from a worldly perspective. But in the eyes of the Father's justice, no one can ever meet that high standard required to be called good. Only one person can make that claim, and that is Jesus Christ. And we need to be very, very mindful of this as we interact with others, kind of like the, the scenarios given before. All conversations need to be sprinkled with grace because of this very thing. Without Christ, we are no better. I want us to picture us back in that courtroom for a minute. A law and order episode, per se. Put yourself there, sitting in the benches this time, watching what just unfolded. Final arguments have been made, and you find out that, one, God is the judge. Mankind is the defendant. That's you and me. The charge is truth suppression. And the sentence is death. This is where we're at, whether Gentile or Jew. Regardless of nationality, denominational preference, religious belief, or parents' pedigree, and so on. And if we left it there, how depressing of a message that is. But what if a defendant's attorney, upon hearing the sentence, informs the judge that he'll pay the sentence himself? All the accusations, all the charges, all the penalties, he will pay by himself. That's nonsense. That would never be done in the real world. But that's what God did for us through Jesus Christ. God wants to see all of us come to know him. Come to know Jesus and be filled by his spirit. He knows our spiritual condition and that the only way to restore that relationship with him is through what was already accomplished at the cross. Sin corrupts the total person. That's 19 and 20. There's absolutely nothing that I can do, nothing I can say or I can believe that will ever restore my relationship with God outside of acknowledging that I cannot and only by placing my faith in Jesus Christ that I will ever be right with God because he took on my sin and made atonement for it by his death at the cross. The death I deserve, the death that we all deserve. But God is so gracious and so loving. His long-suffering, giving us every chance to respond to him. His willingness to pay the ultimate sacrifice. He made a way available. We just need to lay it all down, lay down our pride and accept it. That's amazing grace. That's what this world needs to see. It's not five minutes. shorter. Application. Remember those things I referenced at the beginning? If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what's superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those in the darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of infants because you had that embodiment of truth and knowledge, Let's contextualize that today. Because I don't think, any, anybody, any Jews here? Any? No? No? Yeah. Juice? No, no. OJ is somewhere else, okay? 
So let's contextualize that. If you call yourself a Christian because that's how your parents raised you, if you go to church on Sunday and tell people that you do, if you heard the Word of God preached and know what it says, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of infants, then you, do you teach yourself? Then why do you not do all the things you heard preached or even taught in children's church or Sunday school or small group? You are just as guilty as they are. You are no better off. That is, if you haven't bound your knee to Christ. That was me for sure. I grew up in a Christian home, or more like a, I'll just say, Catholic one that kind of more in name only. So I know about this. I know that some believe that Jesus made a way available, but you still have to work your way to heaven. I know that some believe that they need to clean up their lives before they will be accepted by God. I know that some believe that they are just not good enough. And all of those are lies to keep us from the one who's already accomplished the requirements at the cross. All our righteous efforts, even the best of them, they're just dirty rags, as the psalmist writes. There's great freedom in knowing that we can't do this on our own. But it does require one thing, surrender. So if you're here today and you have not surrendered yourself to the one that's calling you today, then this message is for you. You have an opportunity to receive him even now. Only he can accomplish in your life what needs to be accomplished. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm no better than you. Pastor Alex is not better than you. The elders are not better than you. We're all in this boat together, each and every one of us. The cross is a great normalizer, a great unifier, because it's only through Jesus that we can have that relationship with God. And do you want that here today? If so, pray with me. Father, there are many things that can hinder us from coming to you. We've seen throughout the last number of weeks those various ways. And in this one particular, the I'm not good enough or I'll never measure up and I need to clean up my life before coming to you. And that's such a big lie because uh, we'll never be able to do that. There may be people here today that either have walked the road of following our parents' faith um, or those that um, just feel that they're not good enough. And for those who are of that, uh, may they know even now that uh, it's only through you uh, that we measure up. There's great freedom that was purchased at the cross. So as we're here today, may we lay those things down at the foot of the cross, the things that Tell us that we're not good enough, that I'll never measure up, that I can never be in your presence. And we lay those at the foot of the cross and we ask for your forgiveness and that you would come into our life even now, that you would take what we have, uh, which was already purchased by your blood, and that you would fill us with your spirit, uh, make us new again. 
We confess all those things and ask you into my life, into our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.